Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I am David Chen, and joining us today, he is the man who played Sterling Moss in the 2006 TV movie American Men, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. David, uh, did I end up being Sterling Moss? Uh, that is what the IMDb says. Yeah, yeah. First of all, it was a pilot for a television show, and there was a lot of controversy about Sterling Moss because, I may be incorrect here, because Sterling Moss was an actual race car driver from England. <laughs> and so we, we didn't, I don't think we, re, we did the show, and then we didn't get permission to use the name. And so we had to change my name, and maybe Sterling Moss was the name we changed to. I don't know, but at any rate, American Men <laughs> did not get picked up. But uh, so, I, so did you actually shoot it? Though, is, yeah, is we actually shot it. We actually shot it. It was it was wonderful cast, wonderful cast, and yeah, uh, Sean Astin was apparently in it. Sean was um, in it. He he was wonderful, and. It, it was a precursor for another show, I think, that did succeed, maybe Dads. Is that the idea? Uh, I, I, I don't know, but the plot of American Men is five guys become friends after their children become pals. So uh, yes. it seems like a lot of ripe area for, like... <laughs> male bonding, a lot of male bonding, and... And every, you know, guys carrying uh, huggies with children and huggies. And, you know, it was a male bonding kind of a show. And as men, American men on that show, we did bond. I, we, we, we all got very close on that show. And Sean and I, we were, we were also in uh, Where the Day Takes You, which is a really fantastic low-budget movie. Uh, it was near the beginning of his career. If you want to take a look at kind of a movie that people don't see, I think it was Will Smith's first movie, or one of his first movies before he was Will Smith. You know, he was Will Smith, and that movie was fantastic. But that was one of those films, great cast. Some And I play a pedophile in that film again, wow. again. Classic. 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 Yeah, but American American men, uh, you're not going to see that anywhere except you on will a- not be able to find American men. But you can see where the day takes you. That which is, is correct. Available right now. Yeah, yeah, with me and Sean. Yeah. For today's story, you know, you uh, often have framed a lot of your online identity around the fact that uh, you have pets. You, you have you're you're surrounded by animals. Right. Yes, that is unfortunate, but that is true. And and in my life, I've had, uh, of course, the pooch, which has been immortalized on the podcast. Thank you very much, David. Uh, The pooch, in case people don't know, the the pooch lived quite a happy and successful life, lived into her 20s. Uh, She lived a long time. Uh, And I've had horses, and I've had cats 
all over the place. And this is just an example of, of how that happens, how you end up accumulating animals. Uh, I was in transit from watching the game to the refrigerator and back again when my wife, Ann, intercepted me holding her laptop. And she said, look at this. There was a picture of a cat being held up under its forearms to the camera. I knew it was a cat because of the ears. I couldn't tell you much more. It was just a mass of gray fur with paws and no perceptible personality. Anne moved closer to me with a concern in her voice I rarely hear. She's going to be killed tomorrow. What? I asked. It's on Facebook. She's at a pound, a kill shelter. Her time is up. Tomorrow is the day. Her name is Belle, or Bella. Isn't she beautiful? Well, yeah, she is, I said, trying to placate Anne enough to get her to move away from the refrigerator door. I calmly speculated, you know, I I wouldn't be too concerned, baby. I mean, this is not your average cat. I mean, she's so pretty, I'm sure she's been rescued by now. Anne stepped aside, leaving me enough room to grab the cranberry juice Then she came in for the kill. But what if she's not? I looked at her blankly and continued, What if they kill her tomorrow? Well, what do you want me to do about it? Stephen, let's save her. Anne, no, 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 no. Look, we have two cats. Cats are exponential. Two cats eat four times more than one, destroy four times as much furniture. We can't have three cats. That would make us crazy cat people. Four, Anne said firmly. Four, I asked. Four cats make you a crazy cat person, not three. Stephen, I want her. I promise you, if you get her from me, you will never have to get me another birthday, anniversary, or Valentine's present ever. Really? Really. Annie, you want this cat that badly? Anne could hardly speak. She whispered, I do. We had been married for over 20 years. As I heard the passion in her voice, I realized for the first time that she was probably a crazy cat woman. When we promise for better or for worse, we never know the bargain we're making. Anne never knew she'd have to help me get dressed when I had a broken neck or get in the shower and wash me when I had heart surgery. Now the tables were turned. I had to call the pound. Okay, baby, we'll save her. I headed back upstairs. What are you going to do? I'm going to call them. I'll buy the cat. You can do that? Of course I can. As it turned out, I couldn't. I called the number of the shelter and explained that my wife wanted the cat. The cat executioner on the other end of the line said they weren't a pet store. If I wanted the cat, I would have to show up in the morning before the deed was done, first come, first serve. I stuck to my guns, knowing that the three pillars of human behavior are survival, morality, and having money thrown at you, not necessarily in that order. Well, there must be some way I could get the cat. Maybe if I made a donation to the shelter? There was a pause at the other end of the line. Sir, we're funded by the city. The only way you could guarantee getting the cat is if you paid for the animal to be spayed or neutered in advance. Oh, of course. How much we talking here? One hundred and ten dollars. Done. I have an American Express card. I gave the kill shelter woman my number. 
Very well, Mr. Tobolosky. Did I get it right? Yeah, perfect. Well, the cat is yours. Just be here by 10 tomorrow morning. Not a problem. And what's the address? We're between 55th and 57th Street off of West Avenue I. Uh, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. You said West Avenue I? I never heard of that. What part of town are you in? We're not far from Antelope College. Antelope College? What's that? Sir, where are you calling from? Los Angeles. We're in Lancaster. Lancaster? What's that? It's a city. We're north of Palmdale off the 14 in the Mojave Basin. Basin? That doesn't sound good. Where are you exactly? We're in the desert, past the Angeles National Forest, on the way to Tehachapi. Depending on traffic, you should be able to get here in a couple of hours. Bring a cat carrier. Will the cat be recovered from surgery? She'll be in some pain, but we'll send you home with medication. The next morning, Anne and I were up at dawn. We gassed up the car, bought a bag of bagels, and set off across the great American desert with a case of water and a cat carrier. There were ominous signs when we got to the cinder block building on West Avenue I. Even though we arrived before the shelter had officially opened, there was already a line of about 30 people who had come to claim the cat called Bell. They, too, were moved by the Facebook picture of this hanging mass of fat and fur. They came from all over California. One woman said she came from a cat farm in Fresno. I was so shocked that she drove in from Fresno, I didn't ask the obvious question, what is a cat farm? Another woman said that she woke up that morning and knew she was meant to take Bella home. I told her that I thought the cat's name was Bell with an E. She said it's spelled Bell with an E, but could also be pronounced Bella with an A. That's what her name would be in Italian. Yes, I said, but the cat is not Italian. The woman looked at me with a kind of contempt only an illiterate grown-up child of the 60s who wore too many bracelets and smoked too much pot can muster. Well, she could be Italian. But she's not, I said. We're in California. I wanted to beat her over the head with her own cat carrier. It was probably an overreaction. I was not at my best after the long car ride. Either that, or for some reason I had more invested in this cat than I realized. The kill shelter filled with more people with the computer printout picture of the cat named Belle from Facebook. I'm sure they all felt they were destined to take the cat home, but none of them had what I had. The guts to back up their feelings with a credit card. Everyone had filled out the proper forms. Everyone was armed with a cat carrier. Some carriers were new. Some were well-used and had decals of past pets on them. Everyone was eyeing the competition to see who may have outstanding warrants and would be disqualified for pet adoption. I was not in the mood to wait until someone called my name. I aroused the ire of all the prospective bell owners by going to the front of the line and asking for the cat. A young man who looked like he had been up all night watching cartoons on Adult Swim manned the front desk. He told me picking up an animal was first come first serve and I'd have to go to the back of the line, which now went out the door. I corrected him and explained the American Express card exception. He checked Bell's file. You are Stephen Tobolowski? I am. 
Uh, do you have picture ID and credit card with you? I don't leave home without it. He examined the documents. I'll get the cat. I gave him our cat carrier. He went back and fetched Bell. When he returned with the cat, I was momentarily confused. From what I could see through the mesh screen on the carrier, the cat was wide awake, didn't appear to be in any pain at all. I'm sorry, are you sure this is Bell? I heard she was going to have surgery. He looked at the paperwork again. Oh, yeah, they shaved her stomach and found out she's already spayed. Oh, so she didn't have surgery. Yeah, we only neuter him once. We'll credit back your card. But but I still get the cat? Yeah, that's our policy. You put down the card, you get the cat. You just have to pay the adoption fee, the shots, and the doctor checkup. How much is that? That's uh, $65. He looked at me more critically. How old are you? I'm 60. Let me see your driver's license again. I obliged. He nodded. You're a senior. You get a discount. That'll be $15. You're kidding, I said. Nope. I take it you still want her. Oh, I do. Minutes later, at a cost of $15, Ann and I left behind the dozens of disappointed cat farmers as we headed home across the great American desert with a cat named Belle. The staff in Lancaster warned us that cats are often traumatized when they move to a new home. I wasn't worried. I figured the cat named Belle already knew that any home would be better than a cage at a kill shelter on the day of her execution. Anne was watching the passing landscape out the window. It's easy to believe this used to be the bottom of an ocean, she mused. I wasn't sure if that was true. I'd never been to the bottom of an ocean. But I could easily file her comment in the why not box that married people often use to get through the day. I turned on the radio. One station emerged from the static. It was a Lancaster morning show with a couple of enthusiastic DJs talking about a bake sale and traffic on the interstate and where to buy auto parts. I didn't understand a word, but their patter comforted me. AM radio is the last outpost dedicated to the sounds of civilization the momentary excitement about everything and nothing. Either the vibrations of the car or the voices on the radio or knowing that we could be riding on the bottom of an ancient ocean sparked a comment from Belle. Our silent cat was silent no more. She grabbed our attention with a low, sustained call from the cat carrier. Anne and I looked at the zip canvas container on the floor wedged between her feet. Anne listened and said, She knows. Knows what, I asked. That we saved her. Anne looked at me and smiled. You think? Anne nodded and looked back at the cat carrier. 
Sidebar. It's remarkable the numbers of people throughout my life that have been able to translate what animals are saying. And they do this easily, with no formal training, and it's not just in English. The summer I was an exchange student in Germany, our hostess, Mrs. Diekmann, used to talk to her dachshund in German and explain to us in English what the wiener wanted. Stainer, our riding instructor, spoke to horses in Icelandic, then translated their head nods and ear twitches into English. Oh, Stephen, Yoko wants to get off the trail and run up this hill. He does, I asked. Yes, yes, that is what he's saying. Isn't that dangerous? Stainer looked at Yokel, spoke softly to him in Icelandic. Yokel blew air through his cheek, making a sort of farting sound like... (laughs) No, Stephen, no. He says just put more weight in the stirrups and lean forward and he will make sure you don't fall off. Is he sure? I asked. Stainer looked at Yokel and whispered. Yokel shook his head. Oh, yeah, 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 he's sure, Stainer said, and off we went. And Yoko was right. From that moment on, I was determined to listen to him more carefully. I was never certain of what he was saying, but I knew he could understand me. Disney movies have been hinting at animal-human communication for years, but I've never heard of an actual scientific study being attempted. If it's true, it could be big. We could convince horses to plow a field for a bale of hay. On second thought, maybe it's better left alone. If it were established as a scientific fact, it wouldn't be long before the military tried to teach chimpanzees how to make landmines out of bananas, unless they're already doing that. I read on the internet that cats never meow to communicate with each other. The exception is of a mother cat meowing to her kittens, Grown cats only meow to communicate with humans. The cat named Belle sounded off again from the cat carrier. I was pretty sure she wasn't protesting. She sounded curious. While driving 80 miles an hour and steering with one hand, I reached down and unzipped the top of the carrier. I tried to stick my hand in to let Belle sniff me, like they say to do on the animal planet. Belle never got the memo about sniffing. Instead, she made a break for it. The cat jumped out of the carrier, onto Anne's seat, then onto the center console, and was gathering herself to jump onto the back seat. Anne looked at me in a panic. What did you do that for? I wanted her to sniff me, I said. Why, said Anne. So she could get used to my smell, I said. She'll have plenty of time to get used to your smell. We're driving in traffic on the interstate. Anne grabbed Belle, hugged her to her chest, and lifted her up to her cheek. She held her up to the window so the cat could look out at the countryside. Belle said something quietly to Anne. Anne whispered back, We're taking you to a new home, and we'll love you forever. You'll never have to come back here again. Belle looked up at Anne. Anne kissed her forehead and put her back in the carrier and zipped it up. Is she okay, I asked. Anne looked at me and nodded. She just wanted to say thank you. Well, tell her the pleasure's all mine. And Stephen, said Anne, yes, I want to say thank you too. We looked at each other for a blissful moment of mission accomplished that easily could have been mistaken for everlasting love. As I told her, Anne, the pleasure's mine. Are you happy? Anne tried to smile. She couldn't. Her eyes filled with tears. 
I reached out and held her hand. So, baby, you meant what you said? I asked. What? That I would never have to buy you another present if we got Belle? Never again, Anne smiled. This is the only present I will ever want for the rest of my life. You're off the hook. For birthdays and anniversaries, I asked. This is it, Anne said. Should I get this in writing? Anne laughed and wiped a tear away. If you want. And Valentine's Day, too. I always forget Valentine's Day anyway. Anne put her hand on my shoulder. Done. Damn. This has turned out to be a pretty great trip. And she only cost $15 with the senior discount. After a couple of hours of driving and morning traffic, we arrived home. The people at the shelter said we should be prepared to keep the cat named Belle isolated for three days to acclimatize her to us and her new surroundings. That meant the green bathroom. The green bathroom has long been the designated area of isolation. We put down a towel for Belle to sit on. Anne and I and William and Robert elbowed our way into the bathroom to sit in isolation with the newest family member. William and Robert commented on her beauty. Robert asked, Is her name Belle or Bella? The cat's name is Belle, not Bella, I said with a degree of irritation. Sidebar, I can't stand it when people give their animals foreign names. I have a cat named Anastasia or a dog named Merlin. It's ridiculous. Your cat's not a princess and your dog's not a wizard. Just give your pet a normal name, like our cat Tiger when I was a child. That cat would lay in wait for my father and attack his ankles every morning just like a real tiger. When you give an animal an exotic name, it's like you're bragging. It's like you're saying you have this magical being in your life. Now, my horse was an exception. He was from Iceland, so it was only natural he would have an Icelandic name. Jokul means glacier, which perfectly described his beautiful white coat and long gray mane. It's not a boast. That was just accurate. Belle sat on the purple towel, surveying Anne by the sink, Robert by the door, William crouching in the bathtub, and me sitting on the toilet. I explained the rules of engagement. Okay, guys, listen up. This is what has to happen. Belle is new to the house. She may be uncomfortable here for a while. We need to take it easy, give her time to get used to our smells. We can visit her in here for a few minutes a day, bring her food, water. Now, right now... I'm going to try to pet her to let her know she is safe. I reached down and carefully petted Belle on top of her head and between her ears. She promptly plopped on the ground and rolled on her back for belly pets. Wow, said Robert. I think that's pretty high on the acclimation scale. I think she wants you to rub her tummy, said William. Yes, William, I could see that. I will proceed with belly pets, but very carefully. I began rubbing her stomach, and she stretched out her front paws and purred loudly. I don't think she's nervous at all, said Robert. I'm not so sure, I said. Looks can be deceiving. We don't want to shock her. Dad, the only thing that's going to shock this cat is if you stop rubbing her belly. Robert, face it, Dad. She's a whore. Now, you guys could sit in here and acclimatize. I'm going back to my room. Dad, I'll be back later when your arm gets tired. Bell's three days of isolation lasted 20 minutes. Robert was right. She was happy to be out of the kill shelter. She didn't care how we smelled. 
and she was a whore for belly pats. I opened the bathroom door. She calmly ambled out into the hallway. We moved her food bowl to the kitchen and placed it next to the other cat's food dishes. She followed the food and ate a second lunch while Kashmir and Finn looked on with concern. In the short stretch between the green bathroom and the kitchen, it was clear that Belle had a pronounced waddle. In all of the drama of the day, Anne and I never really inspected the cat. We watched as she swayed her way around the food bowls. Uh, Annie, is she walking funny? Anne tilted her head to the side and squinted like a surveyor. It's her legs. They're too short for her body. It was true. It was almost like her legs belonged to another cat. Her belly was almost dragging the ground. The effect was both comic and tragic. Anne, is she deformed? Anne looked at me with concern and then went to her desk. I'm checking on Facebook. Anne got her computer and scrolled to the picture that launched our journey across the desert. It's not clear here, Stephen. Her legs don't seem to be short, but they don't seem to be long either. Hey, let me take a look. I inspected the photo on the Facebook post. Look, it's, it's the way they're holding the cat. Your eye just focuses on her tummy, but the photo looks stretched. Do you think they could have photoshopped the cat? No, 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 no. They probably just took the picture with a flip phone and said, Do you think we've been taken? I asked. We looked at each other and then at Belle, who moved on to eat the rest of the other cat's food. And will you still love her if she has stubby legs? I asked. I will. She's beautiful. Don't you think? Belle was looking at us from the now empty cat food bowls in the kitchen. She managed a pathetic, almost silent meow. Oh, Stephen, she's still hungry. She's probably been at that kill shelter with nothing to eat for the last week. Footnote. I later found out she had been at the kill shelter for over two weeks. She was given what they call vacation holding. This is when an extended stay is given to animals that could have escaped while their family was away on vacation. They give them an extra week of life so their owners have a chance to return home and claim their pet. Because of Belle's beauty, they assume she wasn't astray. I looked at her gray face with the big, blue eyes and perfect ears with black tips and stubby, stubby, stubby little legs, and my heart melted. I'll open up another can, baby. And that is how, with no period of adjustment, Belle took over the house. Belle slept with us in the bed, Sometimes between us. Sometimes she would curl up in Anne's arms. Sometimes she liked to sleep under Anne's nightshirt, which I used to like to do before Belle started sleeping with us. Belle didn't just show Anne affection. She favored me as well. She woke me up with a headbutt every morning promptly at 6.12 for breakfast. Sidebar. Belle always woke me up at 6.12 for breakfast. She did this no matter what season it was, whether daylight savings time was in effect. It's amazing. But the cat always knew when it was 612. Anne said she probably knew when 6 a.m. was, and 612 was as long as she could hold out. Belle usually woke me up with a headbutt. Not always. Occasionally, she pulled the bedspread up with her little but very sharp claws and roamed under the covers and tried to crawl up my nightshirt. Sometimes she walked across my chest to lap water from my water glass I kept by my bedside table. 
I started sleeping with a pillow on my chest for protection and substituted the water glass for a water bottle. I knew Belle couldn't open that up without thumbs. Belle adapted. She went back to the headbutt or would sit facing me, breathing on me, until I opened my eyes. And if that didn't work, she went to the nuclear option of licking my nose, always at 612. Robert loved Belle's playful spirit and the oddity of her appearance. He decided to capitalize on it. He took my horse crop, tied a long ribbon with a feather on it, and used the slow motion feature on his iPhone to film Belle jumping for the feather. He put it on Reddit. It went viral with over 100,000 hits in the first couple of hours under the demeaning title, Fat Cat Jumps for Feather. Robert uncovered Belle's secret passion. She loved the whip. Anne and I kept a riding crop in the bedroom to exercise Belle's bird-hunting fantasies before bedtime. She would jump, flip, ambush, chase, roll over, and kill that feather over and over again. Belle became what I would identify as dog-like, as she would go for the whip in the corner, paw at it, look at me, give me a meow that commanded me to action, and I would drop whatever I was working on and let the feather fly. Anne was more innovative. She tried to explore variations on the whip feather game. Once I was getting the whip for Belle, Anne looked up from her reading. Stephen, it's the sound. What, I asked? She responds to the sound of the feather, not the sight. Take the whip to the other side of the bed, make a little noise with the whip, and watch. Anne was right. Belle heard the slightest swirling variations of the feather in the air, and she went on the hunt. She attacked successfully, blindsiding the feather with a leap from over the bed, from under the bed, from around the corner. The other cats found Belle perplexing. Finn is our biggest cat. When he got the notion to bully Belle, he learned, as we all learned, that her short legs were still wired for action. She was the fastest cat I'd ever seen. Even if Finn and Kashmir only wanted to play, Belle had no sense of humor when it came to their attacks. She always brought a claw to a paw fight. Anne once again became the cat scientist, relying only on magical thinking. She said, I think Belle speaks a different language. She doesn't understand the other cats want to play, and they don't understand why she doesn't understand. Well, I understand her perfectly. 90% of the time when she meows, she's saying she wants to eat. The other 10%, she wants me to wake up and feed her. It's not meows. It's the way Belle looks at them, or the way they look at her. Maybe it's the way she smells. She could be of a different race. Do cats have races? Why not? So assuming cats have races, wait, wait. Are you saying that Finn and Kashmir are racists? Possibly. Or maybe Belle is a racist, Anne said. Impossible. She's so sweet. Racism has nothing to do with being sweet or not, or nice, or honest. It's the way you decide who the other is, so you could banish them from your society. Like Twitter, I said. Anne looked at me. The fact is our cats want nothing to do with Belle, and she wants nothing to do with them. Oh gosh, it's hard to believe that one or more of our cats are clansmen, I said. Anne pondered the air of our ways. Stephen, maybe we should have kept her in the green bathroom longer.
Belle never made friends with Finn and Kashmir. She became more of a dog cat. She preferred human companionship. If I wrote, she sat by my desk. If I watched a football game, she would watch with me. When I played the piano, the other cats scattered, not Belle. She would gracefully walk under the piano and lie down beneath the soundboard where I'm sure when I banged out Beethoven it felt like an earthquake, but it didn't bother Belle. Belle loved to eat, especially vanilla ice cream, and I always gave her my last bite. The only really naughty thing she ever did was she had a craving to get under the house. My office has a built-in cabinet that was only partially backed, Bell was the first to discover this carpentry shortcut. I was worried sick as she cried from somewhere under the San Fernando Valley. I called to her through the cabinet. She called back. I frantically meowed to tell her that I would wait by the cabinet so she could find her way back to the human world. Anne heard all the noise and came into my office and said, Stephen, why are you meowing? I said, Bell is lost under the house. I'm trying to speak to her in cat so she'll know where we are. Stephen, stop meowing. Walk away. She got in there. She'll get out. Reluctantly, I left. I went upstairs to watch television. Ten minutes later, Belle sashayed into the bedroom, jumped up next to me on the bed as if nothing had happened. The only peculiarity Belle had cat-wise was that she didn't like to be petted. Well, only belly pets. Cashmere proved to be a tree cat. He loved high places in the house. Finn, the bully, was a bush cat. Finn has a chicken heart, always looks for something to hide behind. Belle was a cave cat. She loved dark places that went to who knows where. If she couldn't get under the house or into a crawl space between the walls, she would go into our clothes closet, hide under my shirts, turning every piece of clothing I owned into a collage of cat hair. The dry cleaning bills were endless. So Anne and I finally agreed to keep the closet door shut. On days and nights, Belle would stand and paw at the closed door, meow, begging to get back inside again. Anne and I were always willing to bend the rules for Belle. Our other two cats immediately understood the purpose and use of a litter box. In a universe ruled by cause and effect, I always saw cat litter as proof that there is a God. Belle's understanding of cat litter was limited. She would only utilize the four cat latrines we had strategically placed around the house to pee in, but for some reason she chose to poop on the floor next to the litter box. This was not a good trait, and it was certainly something we had to be on the lookout for when company was coming over. Anne speculated that this single flaw was probably why Belle was left homeless in Lancaster. Over the years, I got used to this negative in Belle's profile. I told myself this only demonstrated that our little cat was able to think outside the box. And that's all I have to say about my Belle. But it's not. I could go on for days. Now my thoughts of Belle are as endless as an alcoholic's confession. She died two weeks ago. I wanted to share some of the prominent facts of her little life so you would understand my grief. It's a grief that's surprising in its power. It takes hold of me in the middle of the night, when I eat my oatmeal, when a breeze hits me a certain way. It's horrible and inescapable. And she was just a cat! 
and not even a remarkable cat. She walked funny. She pooped in the kitchen. She made me laugh when she jumped at the feather. And all she really did was sleep, eat, and silently keep us company. And yet my heart is broken. And it's not just me. Anne was walking through the house doing morning chores, carrying clean laundry to different destinations. She stopped and began sobbing at the foot of the stairs. She dropped the clothes and sat on the ground, crying uncontrollably, muttering to no one in particular, It's not fair. It's not right. I wanted more time with her. I needed more time. My only explanation for the depth of my loss is that love is boundless. It's like a sweater made by someone who doesn't know how to knit. It grows off of itself into shapes we never imagined and becomes something quite unrecognizable to the wearer. The only legacy I have of her seven years at our home was that I was happy when I was unemployed. It meant I could be around to, <laughs> to feed her when she was hungry, which seemed to be all of the time. Sidebar. I often wondered if the frequency of her formal sit-down meals, her intermediate meals, her en passe snacking, was more of a function of memory than hunger. It's possible that Bell's recall had a five-minute statute of limitations. Or maybe her notion of celebration was that another breakfast was right around the corner. I miss the sound of her paws on the tiled floor. I miss her headbutts. This morning, I woke up at 6.30 on my own, and I fell into a pit of hell. Belle was a healthy cat, no ongoing concerns except for her weight. About four months ago, I was enjoying a week off from shooting one day at a time. I was watching a Dodger game on TV. Belle was at my side. And during the commercial break, I leaned over to kiss her forehead and whisper sweet nothings into her ear. And I noticed her breath was bad. I mean, toxically bad. And this was odd. Since I had the few days off, I took her to the vet. They reported that she had significant tooth decay and four teeth had to be removed. When we first got Bell, on a routine vet visit, the doctor mentioned that she had gingivitis, that could lead to tooth decay in the future. I just figured that time had come. Generally, I'm not a big fan of veterinary interventions. And don't get me wrong. I appreciate, I love what vets do. But their job is much more difficult than human doctors. Their patients can't talk. Their patients are also highly susceptible to stress and cannot associate future well-being with the horror and pain of present treatments. Every animal I've ever had understands one thing about pet hospitals. They smell of death. I decided the bell was in such good general health. I could risk a dental treatment if it meant I would have another few years with her at my side. Her infected teeth were removed. The next day, Belle lay like death on the floor by her food dish, unable to eat, unable to stand. Another trip to the vet. They gave her pain medicine and something they called an appetite stimulator. Slowly, over the next three days, Belle started to recover. But her missing teeth made eating difficult. What had I done? It was the one thing that consistently gave her pleasure, and now it gives her pain. Anne tried to comfort me. It was a lose-lose situation, even though I know I did the right thing by treating the infection that eventually could kill her. After a month... 
She seemed like my dear girl again. I pulled out the whip in the bedroom. She began to stalk, but she didn't jump or leap or flip like she did in the past. I thought maybe she was tired. Maybe she was getting old. Then I noticed she was taking the stairs from our bedroom to the food bowl one step at a time instead of her usual dash at the sound of a can opening. I was getting ready to drive to the studio to work on one day at a time, and Anne came to me and said, Have you seen Belle? Yes, I said. Is something wrong? I don't know, Anne said. I could see her breathing. I never remember seeing any of the cats breathing. I looked it up on the Internet, and they said that could be a bad sign. I may take her to the vet today. Sure, I said, whatever you think is right. She seemed fine to me this morning. She ate breakfast. She did, Anne asked. Are you sure? Well, well, I think I'm sure. I opened the cat food, and she waddled over to it as usual. I said, yes, but did she eat? Did you actually see her eat? I thought about it. Well, because, Anne said, I've seen her standing over the food, sniffing the food, then walking away. Well, that's bad, Annie. and That would be bad. Look, I've got to go. I'll call you when we're on a break. Later that morning, I called Anne and asked if there was any news. Well, it has not been the day I expected, Anne said, and not in a good way. What's wrong, I asked. Maybe everything? The vet looked at Belle. She was troubled about her breathing and took an x-ray. She said there appeared to be fluid in her lungs. It was too complicated a procedure for them to handle, so they sent her over to animal specialists. This is a hospital for critical care. They may have to do surgery. I was surprised when I silently began to cry on the other end of the line. Anne continued, They're doing tests, ultrasound, I have a rehearsal tonight. You'll be home? Yeah, yeah. I have a network run through today. I should be home by four. Good. I gave the doctor your cell. The call came that night around 9 p.m. This is Dr. Madden from the Animal Hospital. Is this Stephen Tobolowsky? Yes. Stephen, I'm sorry. The news isn't good. Bell has fluid on her lungs. We drained 200 milliliters. That's a lot. Yes, but what's troubling is that we did an ultrasound and she has more fluid in her abdomen. Well, did you drain that, I asked? No. With that no, I knew everything. Doctors prescribe and perform treatments. That's what they do. That's how they make their money. The only reason they don't do something is when they know there's no hope. The doctor continued. We aren't sure what's wrong with Bell. We could do more tests, but either way, the prognosis isn't good. Whenever we see this kind of fluid in more than one place, it's either cancer or the final stages of FIP, which is a cat virus that's also untreatable. So, um, you're saying her condition is terminal? Yes. I'm sorry. She's such a pretty cat. I, yeah, I, I know. Let me, let me ask you this. What's your best guess? as to how long Belle can live. Ah, maybe a month, said the doctor. I see. Is she in a state where she could come home, where, where she could be with us instead of being with you? Oh, of course. We'll write a prescription for pain medication and an appetite stimulant that would help her eat. 
Okay, I'm on my way. I said, wait, wait, you should know something. There's been an accident, a a sort of freak accident. A car hit a light pole right outside of the clinic and the grid is down. Our entire area is without power. No lights, nothing. They say they could have some emergency power up within the hour, but I don't know. Well, I'll take my chances. All right, we'll be here. The hospital was at the far end of the valley. After weaving for a half an hour through terrible traffic, I saw the full scope of the disaster. I was driving from the civilized world into a Mad Max movie. Blackness everywhere. Random flashlight beams moved up and down the sidewalks. Rising plumes of smoke were illuminated by emergency beacons. City workers wearing yellow safety vests were climbing up utility poles. Helmeted work parties huddled in the middle of the street before vanishing underground with acetylene torches. The hospital was near a freeway exit, but it was not going to be easy getting there. There were no streetlights, no traffic signals. Drivers were giving or taking the right away as they saw fit. I navigated the final two blocks in 20 terrifying minutes. The hospital, pitch black. Doctors, staff, pet owners walked through the darkness using their cell phones for light. I went to the desk and asked for Bell. I was led into an examining room that was lit by a small reading light clipped to a cabinet. After a significant wait, Bell was brought into me wrapped in a blanket. She was so scared, disoriented. I began talking to her. She recognized my voice and stared hard into my face, trying to make out my features. She locked onto my eyes and tried to meow. I told her, I'm here, my darling. Don't be afraid. I gave her a little headbutt and whispered, We're going home. No one's going to hurt you. We're going to get you all better. The doctor came in and sat with us in the dark. We're still awaiting all of the test results. The ultrasound shows she has a mass in her abdomen. Usually that's cancer. We don't know. Look, I don't want to torture her. But can she have surgery? Does that work? Can we save her? If we can save her, I want to try. If it's hopeless, I want to take her home. The doctor was sympathetic, but still fact-based, which I appreciated. We just don't know, she said. We could drain the fluid from her abdomen. That will make her more comfortable. But we still need to get the test results before we know what we're dealing with. And unfortunately, with the power outage, our computers are down. We don't have the ability to do the tests we need to do right now. Then drain the fluid, I said. Right, we'll do that. Come back in the morning, you could pick Bell up with medication to make her more comfortable. They drained 400 more milliliters of fluid from her abdomen and gave me a fistful of drugs. I brought Bell home and took her upstairs. I gave her a dish of water and a plate of food case she ever felt like eating, which she didn't. She never ate again. And I grieve for that. Ann and I called William in medical school. We gave him the bad news. He took it rather well and left us with this bit of information. Pain medication can be effective in stopping the pain, but it has the curious effect of speeding up the death process. William tried to comfort us, explaining that that was good, It meant the patient had less time to suffer. Robert came upstairs. He petted and sweet-talked Belle. 
Then he said to me, You should have left her at the hospital. She's suffering. They would have just given her a shot. No, I said with more passion than I intended. Dad, this is about Belle. You should have let them take care of her, Robert said forcefully. No, 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 I said. Dad, this is not about you. I shouted back, you are wrong. You are wrong. This is about me. Dad, stop it. I yelled at my dear son. No, you stop it. This is about me. Me. I'm the one who will be here for her. I'm the one who's going to bury her. When we take her to the vet, they will kill her. They will kill her, Robert, and that's it. There is no more. There is no doggy heaven. There is no rainbow bridge. Belle only has this one life, and I want her to have as much of it as she can. If all she has left is sleeping next to me, that's fine. But I promise you, if she's in pain, if she suffers, I will put her down. But I won't do it because it's easier. This isn't easy. We saved her from a kill shelter. We saved her life. We will stay with her in death because that's our job. It's our job. That's what having an animal means. You don't let them die alone. And you try to be with them when they're afraid. I'm sorry. That's the way it's going to be. I'm not indifferent on this subject. Robert weighed his next words carefully. Dad. I'm sorry this is happening. I just think, for Belle's sake, we want to make the call a minute too early than a minute too late. Yeah, I said. And that's the difference between us, Robert. Because you don't know if you pulled the trigger a minute too early, if it could have been two minutes, or an hour, or a day. And I want her to have the day. If there is a day. Anne interceded. Stephen, they gave us the phone number of someone who will come to the house so we don't have to torture by taking her to the vet that one last time. Robert, I appreciate your feelings. We know you're right. Just know we're not cruel people. We're not crazy people. We just want our kitty as long as we can have her. Robert nodded and left the room. The next day I had to go work on one day at a time. Wow. That was a difficult day to get through. Surprisingly, my grief didn't interfere too much with the comedy. Viktor Frankl, in his brilliant book, Man's Search for Meaning, says that sorrow is like a gas. It fills up all available space. In that way, every sorrow feels overwhelming. But Bell taught me it is not. It was hard to eat, hard to sleep, hard to drive, but I could still tell jokes. Her last days, I tried various methods to feed Belle. She wasn't interested, except for vanilla ice cream. She still had a taste for it, lapped up a little. She was having greater difficulty walking. I opened the door to our closet, hoping it would inspire her. She looked back at me with sad eyes. It took great effort, but she walked back and lay down under my shirts one more time. I took her in the cat carrier to her favorite places in the house, by the window in Anne's office to watch for squirrels, in the living room when we did exercises. I brought her into my office. She climbed out of the cat carrier into an open drawer of my desk. And so I stayed 
and I began writing this story. I took her back upstairs. She struggled to find a comfortable position. When she fell asleep, I went outside and dug her grave. Out by the birdhouse, beneath the grapevines. I went to the gardening store and bought flowers. Had to have everything ready, not knowing when the moment would come. I told the gardeners to leave the hole alone. Our cat was dying and we would have to bury her soon. The minute too late came at 6 a.m. Friday morning. Belle was in bed with Ann and me and she cried. And it was a different sound. It was disturbing. Ann woke up and looked at Belle. What is she saying, Stephen? I don't know, I said. Use your ESP. You know, she said. I looked at Belle and listened and cried. It's time. We have to call the man to come over now. We have to do it now. She's hurting. Oh, God. What did we do? We waited too long. Anne called. And we discovered a problem with the minute too late theory I so passionately clung to in my discussion with Robert. The man who gave the shot was busy. Lots of other dying cats were on his schedule. We had to wait in line. The American Express card wouldn't help me out here. The soonest he could come to the house was 1 p.m. Today was a show day. Cameras and a live audience for one day at a time. My call was 11.30. I had to leave the house by 10.30. Ann and I held Belle until I had to go. I kissed Belle's forehead. She tried to speak. I told her, I know. I know, my dear. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. It happens to all of us. Anne cried and leaned in and said, My mother and father will take care of you until we get there. No, we love you. And we will always love you. I left for work. I called Anne at our first break, 2 p.m. Annie, is the deed done? No, it isn't. It wasn't. Belle sat up when she heard you go out the front door. When she heard your car drive away, she died. Here, in the bedroom. And Stephen, she didn't know what was happening to her. She didn't want to go. She was surprised. She wanted to stay. Our conversation for the next minute was a mixture of silence and tears. I took a breath. Well, I'll be home tonight, Annie. After the show, we could bury her. Stephen, I'm so sorry. We did that. Robert and I. We had to. We wrapped her in your nightshirt, the one she liked. We carried her out to the garden. I cut off the ribbon from the whip and laid it with her so maybe she could play with it when she gets to wherever she's going. Robert buried her, and I laid the stone you picked out on top as a marker. All I could say was, thank you. And that is the story of my bell. All I have left is the epilogue. What are we? All I know is we're not what we think we are. The combination of intelligence, imagination, and terror has formed a creature that's composed of more magic and less knowledge than we would like to admit. But our living in a constant state of uncertainty is why we tell stories. It's why we laugh at jokes. It's why we write love songs. The show went very well that night. The audience loved it. I got home. Robert was waiting for me in the dining room. He hugged me and said, 
I'm so sorry, Dad. You worked so hard for us. Thank you. The next morning I went out and planted my flowers. I sat in silence for a moment before the stone beneath the grapevines and offered words of love to my last cat. That was The Last Cat, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my my pleasure not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but David, to tell you the truth, and it's very true, especially during this pandemic, people have, have such a profound connection to their animals and to the love that those animals give them. It's such an important part of their life that I just wanted to do a story uh, that reflected that love and what people go through when they lose an animal. Uh, So I wanted a little memory here, a little love story for Belle. Well, we appreciate you sharing that with us, Stephen. And I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the podcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com. And Stephen, where can people find video versions of this podcast? See if I get this right. TobolowskiFiles.com slash... Not, not even close. No. Not even close. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. That's right. You nailed it. So it's YouTube.com. You get that part first, and then you do the specific, which is slash Tobofiles. Yeah. It's a, it's a mnemonic, basically. Um, check out my other podcast, <laughs> Culturally Relevant, at culturallyrelevantshow.com or wherever your podcast can be downloaded. This podcast is powered by Simplecast, a great podcast management and analytics tool. That's going to bring us to the end of the episode. We'll see you next week for a brand new episode of the Tobolowski Files. Adios. <laughs>